Gracious Lord, I pray that you'll help us understand your word better this morning, that we will love it more, and then because of that, we will love you more. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, yeah, okay, so I grew up in a Christian home, in church, really. I mean, I went to church all the time. One of those people was like, when the doors were opened, we were there, you know? And, uh, and I, I feel like I didn't love the Old Testament well. I feel like I thought the Old Testament was, you know, old. Yeah, <laughs> this is old. And, uh, and it wasn't until, like, I started intentionally studying the Bible on my own that I started to realize, man, the Old Testament is, is awesome. It's so enjoyable. And so I think for a lot of us, we need to change our, our perspective for the Old Testament. I think a lot of people will ignore it because they think it's outdated. They think it's irrelevant. They think it doesn't matter to us today. They think it was written to a bunch of people at a different time in a different place. You know, not us. It wasn't written to us. And so people think, how can that be important? And especially as we talk about this week, as we've been talking about how the resurrection of Jesus is the central point in time. And we, if that's the case, then the Old Testament should have something about that, right? If the Old Testament, you know, for 2,000 years, God was putting together this Old Testament, giving to his people, his word revealed to his people. If it's, if Jesus and his life, death, burial and resurrection is the most important thing that ever happens, surely the Old Testament would say something about it. And so I'm, I believe that it does. And that's what we're going to get to, especially at the end, we're going to talk about resurrection from the Old Testament, which in, even in my study this past year preparing for this just blew me away. But first, what I want to look at is I want to look at how does the New Testament look at the Old Testament? Right? Because for most of us, we read the New Testament more than anything else. If you're reading your Bible, most likely you're reading the New Testament. You're not reading the Old Testament as much. But, and, we, and it's easy for us to look at the New Testament and say, yeah, this is easily God's Word. We see how this is for us, to us today. Well, what, is the, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? Okay, so let's first look in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, this is a letter that Paul is writing. Paul the Apostle, who wrote like most of the New Testament, he's writing to Timothy. Now, let's try to get, us, get yourself in this context, because this was 2,000 years ago. And when Paul is writing this letter, he's also writing the Bible. Right? Do you guys understand that? So when Timothy is receiving this, he doesn't know this, but he's receiving part of what the Bible would be. Right? And, and this is when the New Testament is being written and compiled. So does, does Timothy, does he have the New Testament? No, he doesn't. All right. So let's think about that. Imagine this is you receiving this letter. Okay, because what does Timothy have as far as God's word? He has the Old Testament. Okay, so keep that in mind, because this is really this is eye opening. We have to understand scripture in context. Right. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, just a young guy training him for ministry. And he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says the verse that we've all heard a ton, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right. Now, when Paul is writing this to Timothy and he says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood. What specifically is he referring to? The Old Testament. 
Now, isn't that crazy? He calls the Old Testament these sacred writings. And what does he say that the sacred writings are able to do? Which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. I mean, we need to realize that the Old Testament was pointing towards Christ Jesus. This is huge. And it's, inter- it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's interesting that he uses that term, Christ Jesus, because you guys, um, what you guys need to remember is the term Christ. That's actually a, uh, that's a Greek word for an, the Old Testament word Messiah, right? That the, the Old Testament can lead us towards salvation and faith in Jesus if we understand it properly. That's huge. And then he says, all Scripture. Now remember, when we think of Scripture, what do we normally think of either the whole Bible or pro- practically we probably think of the New Testament. And, but when he's writing this, the New Testament is still being written. And he says all Scripture is profitable. And he's writing to New Testament Christians, right? Like us. So even the Old Testament, and in this, in this passage, especially the Old Testament, is profitable for, look at this stuff, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that you can be complete and equipped for every good work. That's good for us to remember, right? Because the New Testament loves the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus quotes the Psalms and Deuteronomy more than anything else. Jesus loves it. Well, I mean, Jesus also wrote it, so that's helpful, right? So we've got to keep that in mind. Okay, so then what about in 1 Peter? This is also a really awesome passage. In 1 Peter, kind of in his introduction, he talks about this salvation that was given to them, which you should go back and read. We don't have time for it today. But in verse 10, he says this, concerning this salvation. Now, listen real carefully. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, who's he, who, what prophets is, is he referring to? Like the prophetic books in the Old Testament, right? That's what he's talking about. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is so cool because he's talking about the prophets from the Old Testament. Now, we, we, we don't need to, we need to realize that the prophets in the Old Testament, those were, they were writing to real people at that time. And that their words had specific meanings for, that, for those people in that context. And we need to try real hard to figure out what that is. But we also need to realize that in addition to that, they were also pointing towards a future Messiah. And it was a mystery. The Old Testament is, is filled with mystery because they have glimpses. They have little tiny hints. And, and what's crazy is when we look back at them, they're more than just hints, Right? But they're pointing towards Jesus, towards the Messiah, right? And so for us, we need to realize that the Old Testament wasn't just written to those people at that time, even though it was. It was also written ultimately about Jesus and for us. So that even the, even the people that were writing it were wondering how we were going to view it. You know, they're like, man, what is this about? There's just, and especially here, because it says there's two different things about, the, about Christ that they revealed his sufferings and his glory, right? Because there were, it's, it's confusing when you read the Old Testament. There's two different messiahs. 
At least it looks like it. It looks like there's some kind of Messiah that's going to be this ruling, reigning king. But there's also a Messiah that's going to be beaten, that's going to be despised and rejected. So which is it? Well, they didn't know. They couldn't get it. But now we see the whole thing together because Jesus was the suffering Messiah and then was raised up in glory and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father who one day will take us all into his kingdom. Right? We can see it looking back. We can see it more clearly. We have a better view of the Old Testament now than even they had when it was being written because angels were still trying to figure out what was happening. It's like, it's like this. Have you guys ever watched a, uh, a movie that has a huge twist in it? Um, like uh, one of the biggest ones ever. Did you guys ever see The Village? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Village. I won't tell you what the... By the way, you guys need to be good friends. And good friends don't spoil movies for people. You don't do that. But I can tell you there's a big twist, and you can say, oh, there's a big twist. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. Has you guys ever watched the movie A Beautiful Mind? Anybody ever seen this movie? It's A Beautiful Mind. There's a big twist in it. Okay? So my wife and I, one night, watched the first half of it. And I came into work, and I was talking to some people on staff, and I was like, oh, man. This looks like a really cool movie. Rock and I watched the first half. We're going to finish watching the end. You know, tonight we're going to watch the rest of it. And one of my coworkers, who will remain unnamed because I don't want to shame him in front of everyone, he said, oh, have you gotten to the point where you find out so-and-so? And I'm like, you know, the big twist? And I said, no. No, I haven't. Thank you. Appreciate it. But have you ever noticed that when you watch those movies a second time, you think, oh, this is obvious. I should have known. Like, I remember, uh, I remember watching the, uh, the first Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie, not the fifth one, but the first one when I was in high school. Pretty cool. And, uh, and I remember when you find out who the bad guy is, it blew me away. I was like, what? No, it can't be. He can't be the bad guy. He's dead, you know? And then all of a sudden, I then, you know, it just kind of started dawning on me. And I was like, well, maybe you should have known this. And so I watched it again, and I felt like the biggest idiot. Because when you know the ending, the hints that they drop aren't just little tiny hints. It's like alley-oop dunks. You're like, oh, I should have known this. This is so easy. And that's the way it is with the Old Testament. Because now we can read the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the New Testament. And so it's so easy for us to, to be looking for and be like, oh yeah, this is about Jesus. Oh yeah, this is about Jesus. Oh, this is about Jesus. And it's, it's, it's huge. It's like the New Testament gives us a lens to view the Old Testament, which makes everything clear. It takes away the mystery. Which, by the way, when we see the word mystery in the New Testament, there's a lot of people that will make a big deal about the mystery of the gospel and mystery, mystery, mystery. And they want it to seem really cool and, and like, oh, yeah, the, the God and religion, Christianity is so mysterious. Well, no, not so much. When the New Testament talks about the mystery of the gospel, it talks about the mystery being revealed. It was hidden for ages and ages, and now it's been revealed in the gospel of Jesus. Right? And so we need to no longer be praising God for his mystery, although there are things that we'll never know. We need to be praising God for the revelation of Jesus, the incarnate word of God, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. That's huge. All right. So give the, trying to give us a better lens um, to see it. And also one more thing about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, we need to realize that the New Testament is about Jesus, but not in the same way. 
All right, not in the same way. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture. This is, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, and this is in Luke 24. Jesus, to give you the context, Jesus had just died and it had been three days afterwards. And there were some disciples who were following, who had, you know, the disciples were so confused. The disciples were like, man, what are we supposed to do? Right? You guys, you guys remember this? The disciples, they didn't know what was happening. Okay, so there's two disciples and these aren't part of the 12. They're walking on the road um, and Jesus appears to them. So let me talk, let's look at this because then Jesus is going to tell us what we're supposed to know about the Old Testament. Um, So that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus and it was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. And that means Jesus, right? They're talking about when Jesus was crucified and that people had said he'd been raised from the grave, but they didn't know anything about that. Okay, that's what they're talking about. So while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near to meet with them. That's, that's, this is awesome. But it, then it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So this is, I mean, could you imagine if, if I could insert myself to any story in scripture, uh, this is, this ranks up there. This is top three. I would love to be one of these guys when Jesus just shows up because look at what he does. Now, remember Jesus, you guys remember Jesus knows everything. Jesus is the same guy that would answer people's thoughts. Like people would, like he's, he'd heal someone, say your sins are forgiven. And then the scripture will say, oh, and they were, the, the scribes were thinking to themselves about who is this that can forgive sins. And he's like, oh yeah, so you guys are asking this, you know, so remember this is Jesus. All right. So Jesus says to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And then it says, and they stood still looking sad. They stopped walking and they're sad, dejected. And they say to him, this is, this is awesome. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Do you guys catch the irony here? Uh, Jesus is actually the only one who does know what has happened. They're the ones who are confused. And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, I just can imagine. I mean, they're talking to the creator of the universe, right? Uh, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our wi- the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was still alive. Then some of us who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they didn't see him. And then, I mean, so they're like freaking out. Can you believe what's happened? And then Jesus says, before he reveals himself as Jesus, he said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then look at this. This is, this is a conversation I want to be a part of. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How awesome would that be? What we're talking about is an autobiographical survey of the Old Testament. Jesus, Moses and the prophets, all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wouldn't that be awesome? And what we need to learn is that 
from everywhere in Scripture, there are things that are pointing towards Jesus. But I want us to understand that it's not always in the same way, right? Like, for instance, I've got three things about how the Old Testament is all about Jesus. One is the overall story. The overall story of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Number two, there are types of Jesus in the Old Testament. I I said types, not allegories, because I want to explain the difference. There are types of Jesus in the Old Testament. And third, there are direct prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. So we've got the overall story, types of Jesus, not allegories, and then direct prophecies. So let's look at the the overall story. To me, this, this one point is is very important. This is, this is key in understanding how to properly interpret the Old Testament because it's not necessary. Like I was talking to the youth leaders yesterday morning and how I'd read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and, uh, and you can do like a one-to-one comparison. You can be like, oh, Aslan. Aslan is Jesus, right? And then I read The Lord of the Rings and I was thinking, who's Jesus? Because I knew that Tolkien was a Christian. And then it's, it's difficult because it looks like Aragorn might be Jesus sometimes or Frodo might be Jesus sometimes or the wizard might be Jesus sometimes. They all have different like savior characteristics right and so you can't just do the same thing with the in the old testament you can't just be like all right here we are like for instance in the uh in the story of esther do you guys have you guys read esther everybody you guys know esther you know that real tall skinny like p you guys know what i'm talking about veggie tales come on VeggieTales are awesome, but not a good place to get Bible stories because it's confusing because it's not exactly right. Anyway, because Esther wasn't a legume, it's not true. Anyway, um, but you guys, so you guys are familiar with the story of Esther, right? Everybody's pretty familiar. I'll explain some of it as we go. But um, a lot of people didn't think Esther needed to be in the Bible. Do you guys know that? That there was controversy? Some people didn't think Esther needed to be in the Bible. Do you know why? Because it's a girl? Blake. Come on. No, not because she's a woman. Did you guys know that Esther doesn't contain God's name in it? What? I'm telling you that all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And there is a book in the Old Testament that doesn't even have God's name in it? How can that be about Jesus? And that's a good question. And I'm telling you that there's this overall story. Okay, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, man. Yeah, there's a big picture. Yeah, so the big picture of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Um, And then here, I've got some really nerdy words that say exactly what I want to say. So sticking with the nerdy words. The meta-narrative of salvation history. That there is an, and a narrative is, means a story. A meta narrative is like an overall story that attaches all these stories together. Does that make sense? This overall story that attaches all these other stories together. That's the meta narrative. And it's a meta narrative of salvation history. The way that God is providing salvation is the story of the Old Testament. Okay? And then I put in there that it has messianic expectations because there is a Messiah promised in all of the Old Testament is trying to figure out who is this Messiah and what about him. Okay, so where does Esther come into this? Because you can't just say, you can't just read Esther because Esther has an uncle who's a godly man. His name is Mordecai. You can't just read it and say, oh, well, Mordecai is supposed to point to Jesus. Well, no, not like that. Not necessarily. Or what about Esther? Is Esther Jesus? No, we can't say that either. Do they both do things that are godly and characteristic that 
that should that should we should see that they have godly characteristics that are perfected in Jesus? Sure, absolutely. But what we need to realize is that the story of Esther is about God keeping his promises. Because God promised the Messiah and in the story of Esther, you have um, the, a Persian king saying that all the Jews are going to be killed. Oh, that's crazy. He gets tricked into that. And since the laws of the Medes and the Persians can't be re- reversed, can't be overturned, he then passes another law that tells all of the Jews in all of the Persian Empire, not only that, they, that they're not going to be killed, well, I mean, there's still that law, but he tells them all, take up arms and fight back to people trying to kill you. And so thousands and thousands of God's enemies are killed in like a day. Why? Because this Persian, this Persian emperor told the Jews to fight back to their oppressors. Why is that important? Well, because there is a Messiah that's been promised. And that Messiah is going to come through the Jewish people. And if the Jewish people are dead, will that Messiah come? Nope. So here we have in Esther, God is using a pagan empire to preserve his people. This is how it's about the, this is how it's about Jesus. You see what I'm saying? So the overall story. So we need to, when, it, when we're trying to figure out the context, when you're looking in the Old Testament, say, man, what's the overall story here? So that way, even genealogies, because you, you guys know what genealogies are, like so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. And you read through that and you're like, man, this is really boring. But you know what we need to realize? This is God's declaration that he's keeping his promise. God's keeping his promise. He's, he's fulfilling this line. So it goes back, the, 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 the overall story of salvation history, we can see starts in Genesis chapter 3. This, this gives us the trajectory for all of the Old Testament. Now I'm going to read this passage, and you might be thinking, Zach, I think you're reading too much into it. And then I'll say, no, I don't think so, because here's some other passages. So that's what's going to happen. All right? And so you guys remember um, that Adam and Eve were created. We talked about this yesterday. And that they had um, all of the blessings they could ever have, all of the fruit and vegetables wonderful uh, that they could ever imagine. And they decided to disobey and eat the one thing that was poisonous. Um, and we need to just to change your perspective on this a little bit. Um, this is, this is not God being cruel. You guys understand that a lot of people think, why would he give them such a stupid rule? Why would he just say, this is one tree. You can't eat it. That's so mean. That's so unjust. Well, no, it's not here. Let me tell you, let me use an example. My kids, I've got three kids, five, three, and one, all boys, objectively the cutest human beings in the world. Super cute. Anyway, so that's an objective fact. You can't argue with it because it's objectively true. Okay, um, just so you know. Anyway, so they love, like, picking blueberries and blackberries and raspberries. They love that, which who doesn't? Because it's like there's food growing on trees for you. That's exactly what's happening. And so um, my kids, we would, we used to, around here, we've got tons of blackberries up in the woods. Here in the mountains, we just have blackberries and raspberries everywhere. It's wonderful. Okay, so my kids like this so much. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in my yard. So I've got like less than half an acre. And I decided to put some, I, I planted like eight blueberry bushes and some raspberries and blackberries. And then I thought, why stop there? So I may have like 30 fruit trees in my yard. Why not? I mean, they're all like this tall right now, but in like six years, I'm going to have all the fruit I could ever imagine. You guys can all come over and have some fruit. Um, 
every type of fruit imaginable. I just, I figured go big or go home, right? And uh, so let's say that five years go by and I have just tons of fruit in my yard, right? And we've got fruit, we've got, we've got fruit trees, we've got berries, blackberries, raspberries. There's different types of raspberries. Who knew that? I didn't. I do now. There's different types of blueberries. Cool. All right. So let's say I tell my kids, just go outside and eat. Look, all of the fruit you could ever imagine, everything that could act, that could possibly grow in this area is growing in our yard. Enjoy. And then suppose that there, because you guys know you can't eat all berries. Some of them will kill you. Suppose a poisonous berry grows up in my yard. Do you think I would be a terrible father if I then put restrictions on my kids? And said, oh, you can eat on everything out there. Eat the berries, the blackberries, the raspberries. Eat all the things of the trees. Oh, but there is this one right in the middle. See it right there? Don't eat that because it's poisonous and it'll kill you. If I told my kids that, would you think, what a mean, tyrannical despot? Would you think that? You don't even know what despot means, but it sounds bad, right? (laughs) Would I be mean to do that? No, I wouldn't. That would be gracious. That would be loving. It would be loving for me to say, you can eat all of these, but this will kill you. That's what God did. He said, you can eat all this, but this is poisonous. You eat this, you will die. And so they did what we would have done. They ate it. And so God in, in God curses the man, the woman, and the serpent. And even in cursing, he's got grace. Because look, in Genesis three fourteen and 15, it says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. Now pay attention. This, this is one little tiny part in scripture, but it has enormous consequences. He says to the serpent and he's also real. Remember, because Satan used the serpent. So this is to Satan. I will put enmity, which is like hostility, rivalry between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what he's saying in this is that you, the serpent, Satan, you're going to be able to attack his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And you might, and if this is a promised seed that, that there's going to be a, a human who's going to be born that is going to do this. And now we read that and that's just one sentence. But this, this sets the trajectory for the entire Old Testament. And the, and the Old Testament, they, uh, we see from the Old Testament that they thought so too. Like when Adam and Eve, remember Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel, so they had a good son, a bad son. The bad son killed the good son. They're like, oh no. What about this promise? There's supposed to be an offspring of a woman. There's a seed of a woman who's supposed to do this. And so then Seth is born and they say, maybe this is him. And then generations later, we have um, when Lamech, uh, Lamech is Noah's father. When Noah's born, Lamech says, maybe this is the one to save us. Maybe this is the one who's going to reverse everything and take it back to the garden to get rid of the curse. So the Old Testament, everybody from Adam on, 
They heard this, this curse and this promise in it and believed that there was a coming Messiah. A coming, a Messiah just means anointed one. That there was going to be a coming anointed one that was going to save them. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. See, then we see it narrowing down to a specific family. Because God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make this nation out of you. And there's going to be a seed. One of your seeds. Same word from, from Genesis chapter 2. This, there, or Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be a seed that is going to affect the whole world. The whole world is going to be blessed through it. So then they have this idea, yeah, that, that there is salvation, there is a Messiah coming through the Jewish people. And so all of the Old Testament is in preparation for this Messiah that is coming from the Jewish people. That is huge. So this helps us understand everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. Then we see that there are types of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, we need to be very careful that there, we talk about types, not allegories. Allegories is when you just make something into a word picture. Like, there, I've heard people say stuff like, oh, well, in Song of Solomon, uh, there's a part in Song of Solomon where he kisses her with the, the lips of his mouth. And you know what it's talking about? It's talking about a man kissing a woman. That's what it's talking about. But then this guy went on to say, and we know that, uh, that, the, that husband and wife, that's kind of like Jesus and the church. And so that this is like Jesus kissing the church with the lips of his mouth. And there are two lips. So there's like grace and truth. So this is telling us that Jesus loves the church with grace and truth. You can't say that. And not from Song of Solomon. Not from the verse. He kisses her with the lips of his mouth. That's, that's, that's just making an allegory. We need to understand that the that there are types of Jesus in the Old Testament. We can, but we can only understand that when the New Testament tells us about it. When the New Testament reflects that, when the New Testament points us back. So, for instance, we see from the New Testament that Moses was a picture of Jesus, and that Moses prophesied about a Messiah that was to come, and the the ultimate the ultimate fulfillment of that was Jesus. But there was an immediate fulfillment in Joshua, and Joshua himself also is a type of Jesus, pointing towards that. Hebrews uh, Hebrews even tells us that Joshua was basically a type of Jesus, and he was providing a rest that was just a type of the rest to come. And so it's really awesome because what we see in these types of Jesus, in these types of salvation in the Old Testament, we see the shadows of the true of the of the true thing it's pointing towards which is Jesus and the new kingdom that he's given to us. So we can read that and we can love it in the Old Testament in its Old Testament context seeing how God is faithful and planted out then and how also is pointing towards Jesus. Really great. So we see that yeah we see uh Moses, Joshua, David um Tons of, there's tons of t- types in the Old Testament. We need to make sure that we follow the road signs. We need to make sure that we do the hard work to see the connections instead of just saying, oh, this must be Jesus. Um, next, there are direct prophecies. There are over 300 direct prophecies. Some would say up to 354. And these prophecies are so specific. Right. I mean, we see pro- prophesied where Jesus would be born, that he'd be born of a virgin, that he would then uh, leave uh, leave where the place of his birth to go to Egypt, to come back from Egypt and move to a different place and be called the Nazarene. All of this stuff that Jesus could never even have any type of control over. And so we, Jesus obviously isn't trying to fulfill all of these, like it's a hoax. Like he's trying to, he's seeing all these things like, okay, well, let's try to intentionally put all this together because so much of it had to do with before he was born. Right. And so, but we see that God is sovereignly in control of human history, that he can bring about every prophecy. We also need to look and see the way that God's creativity works, because there's so many times that Old Testament, uh, Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled two times. One in the immediate fulfillment, and then second in the ultimate fulfillment. It's so cool. And sometimes we don't get it. Like, for instance, 
And you should read Matthew, read the first several chapters of Matthew, and every time he says, this is to, fill su- to fulfill such and such, a reference, look that reference up. It's really interesting. Because Matthew, in Matthew 2.15, he says that uh, when Jesus comes back from Egypt as like a two-year-old, uh, a two, because the Herod, who the, one, the guy who wanted to kill him, is dead, Matthew says, this is to fulfill what the prophet said, out of Egypt I've called my son. And so a lot of times, you know, if we're not really taking the time to study, we read them, we're like, oh, there must be a prophecy about Jesus coming back. Well, if you, that's prophecies from Hosea 11. And when you read Hosea 11, it looks like that's not a prophecy at all. It looks like Hosea is just describing uh, when God brought uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. But what that helps us understand is that in God's mind, God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt was pointing forward to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? How cool is that? God bringing the people of Israel out of their literal slavery to a human oppressor and bringing them out of Egypt, providing salvation in the Exodus was a picture of God bringing his people out of a slavery to sin and into his kingdom, into his rest. Joshua gave them a rest, but that rest wasn't the ultimate rest. The ultimate rest is with Jesus in his kingdom. That's what Hebrews tells us. Pretty awesome. All right, and so then another misconception we have, I get two more things. Another misconception is people talk about how in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath, and the New Testament is a God of grace. You, anybody ever heard that? You guys ever heard like, oh, the Old Testament God, God of wrath, New Testament God, God of grace. We gotta, you gotta, you gotta forget that. Throw that out the window. That's not true. That's not even based on the Bible. Because remember when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Anybody remember? What's the greatest commandment? Just say it. Yep, that's right. Love the Lord your God. And people are like, yeah, see Jesus? He's, he's talking about love. That's the New Testament. Do you know what Jesus is doing? Quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. That's awesome. This is where Jesus gets that love stuff from. He gets it from the Old Testament. Look at this passage in Deuteronomy 7. If, I mean, this is grace. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from Pharaoh the king of Egypt. Know therefore, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant with steadfast love and those who love him, to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I mean, this is grace. Was it because you were really important that God chose you? Nope. He just chose you and set his love on you, even though you were the fewest of people. In fact, when God chose the Jewish or the Hebrew people, they were, in fact, the very fewest in number. They were one person, Abraham, you know? This is just God's grace. And as far as God's wrath, scripturally, this is... We need to understand that scripturally, we, don't, we only see a little bit of God's wrath in the Old Testament. We see the fullness of God's wrath in the New Testament. Because scripture teaches us that God in the Old Testament pushed back the penalty and the punishment for people's sins. 
in his divine, Scripture says his divine forbearance, his patience with us, he pushed back their sin until he poured out all of the wrath against sin on Jesus. That's huge. But it's crazy because at the cross, we see the fullness of God's wrath against sin and the fullness of God's grace towards us at the same time. That's awesome. So, And then we also see in Revelation, what Rob was talking about this morning, we see God's, the rest of God's wrath against sinners is exercised at the end of times in Revelation. So we see more of God's wrath in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. And the, the, the Old Testament is filled with grace, grace upon grace. All right, so the last thing I want to look at is, uh, is I want to look at resurrection from the Old Testament. In, re- in the Old Testament, we, uh, it, for me, w- kind of thinking through this, you know, we say, again, the resurrection is the central point of all history. So if that's the case, we should see some, some of it in the Old Testament. And until I put this, until I started preparing for this, I didn't know that there was resurrection in the Old Testament, but it's everywhere. It's all over. And so what I want to do is I want to read a passage of Scripture from John 11. Now, this is the same passage that Brody preached on a Monday night, but I want to highlight some different things. Um, I believe that you guys should study the book of John because it's in the Bible. And when you study it, pay attention um, to the, the words that people say. I think that John uses people's discourse, their talking, to tell his theological points that he wants to make. So let's pay attention to what people say in this story. In John 11, I'm going to start in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. You guys remember this, right? We talked about Monday night. Um, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, listen Listen to what Martha says. I'm, I'm asking you guys, this is hard. You're going to have to think critically right now. I know, difficult. How dare I? What is, Martha, what is Martha saying in this? She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's she acknowledging? Yeah, just say stuff. Yeah. That's exactly right. That if he had been there, he could have kept him from dying. Right? That's a big deal. I mean, this is before modern medicine, because it's not modern. This is pre-modern. Right? She's saying something about Jesus, that he has the ability to keep someone from dying. Right? To heal Lazarus. That's a miracle. Miracles are something that only God does. Right? She she knows that, that Jesus is God. This is a big deal. All right. And then she says this in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What is she saying? Okay. She said that he could have kept him from dying and now he's dead. And now she's saying, whatever you ask now will happen. What does that mean? Yeah. Say it. He can bring him back. She is telling Jesus I know that you can make him alive again. Do you, do you guys get that? Martha, just a simple lady, you know, just a simple lady who loves Jesus. And she knows, one, that Jesus could, could heal him. But then she's saying this, I know that even now, he's been dead four days. I know that you can bring him back alive. That's what she's telling him. This is, 
This is huge. She's saying he is God in control of life. And then, this is crazy. Jesus returns and says, your brother will rise again. And in my mind, I'm not a good, I'm not a good Old Testament student. So I think, well, this, Martha's got to be blown away by this. Martha's got to think, what? He's going to live again? That's what, that's in my, in my mind, that's what she's supposed to say. But we realize he's already, she's already acknowledged he could bring him back to life if she want, if he wants to. And then what she says, listen to what she says. This blew me away. She, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, you guys remember, uh, Martha doesn't have the New Testament. But she is telling Jesus with confidence, oh yeah, I know there's going to be a resurrection on the last day and that he's going to live then. Where does she get that from? The Old Testament. Martha's a good Old Testament student. Way better than me because I, I think, what? Martha knows there's going to be a resurrection on the last day? That's crazy. And then, of course, Jesus steps it up and says, whoa, whoa. I just want you to know something. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then she says, he says, you believe this? And she says, oh yeah, you're the Messiah. She gets it, right? She gets it because she's a good student of the Old Testament. And she's seen all of this fulfilled in front of her. This is, I mean, this is awesome. Let's look at a couple passages here that will blow you away because this is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, because you guys remember this. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You remember that, Pharisees and Sadducees? And that the the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection or spiritual things, which should let us know, oh, there must be enough stuff in the Old Testament that there would be a controversy over whether or not there's a resurrection or not. Right? You guys get that? I mean, we should have thought of that. I didn't, but now I do. And look at this. Look at this in Isaiah. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Oh, maybe Martha's thinking about this passage. This is talking about a resurrection. What about this in Daniel 12? This is crazy that this is in the Old Testament. I never noticed it. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a, Daniel has a good understanding of the end times. Of, he has a, a theology of resurrection that one day there's going to be a last day of judgment and that some will go to everlasting Heaven with Jesus and everlasting hell separated in judgment. Do you guys see this? So yeah, well, I guess Martha should know. This makes sense. Martha knows the Old Testament way better than we do. Look at this in Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job is looking forward to a future resurrection bodily resurrection where he in his flesh will see God and will worship his redeemer. Wow. This is awesome. And all of this is possible because of Jesus. The only reason, only way that there's a, a, a resurrection for anybody is because Jesus has paved the way that Jesus in his death, in his burial in his resurrection, has conquered sin and death and hell and has paved the way so that he can bring us into it. That is so huge.
And we need to realize that this is such a big deal that the Old Testament from the beginning was pointing towards it. Pointing towards it. And that all of the Old Testament just added and added, dropped hints here and there. And then finally we see the culmination in the incarnate Son of God who made a way of salvation for us. And that the salvation in the Old Testament was awesome and was really cool, but it was pointing towards salvation in Jesus. Right? You know, we go back to that one passage in Second Timothy. He, that the Old Testament can make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, but it's only through Christ Jesus that you can actually accept all of that that was pointing towards Him. So that's for us today. For us today, we need to look at the Old Testament and we need to love it. We need to love it. We need to realize that everything was about Jesus. And then we need to do the hard work and to find out, well, how exactly is this about Jesus? And, uh, and that's for us. That's for us to do for the rest of our lives. Um, that's what uh, Spencer was, is talking about over there. He's just talking about getting the most out of your Bible. Right? The main thing you need to do is you just need to read it. Read it, read it, read it over and over and over. Just keep reading. Get to a point you can stop and study it. Dig down deep. And then when you find something that you're like, man, this is awesome, just spend some time enjoying it, marveling in it, telling others about it, you know? That's what, that's what we're doing. That's what we have to do. And in so doing, God will make us more like Jesus in that. So let me pray for us, and you will have 13 minutes before first lunch. Gracious Lord, I pray your blessings over all of us. Help us to love your word more, that we love you more, so that we are more pleasing to you in the way that we live our lives, and that our lives will conform to what we believe, specifically the truth of this gospel that you have come to save us and others, and that we will share that message to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.